We're going to um, turn to the book of Revelation. The, we're going to look in the fourth and fifth chapters this morning. Revelation 4 and 5. And you may think that that's a little bit of a turn from our work in Ephesians, but I think that what you're going to see is that we're backfilling some of God's sovereignty here. And last week we made much of the promises of God in kind of an overview of chapter 1. And uh, I think it necessary and I think it good to take from those promises that were done before the foundation of the world that are from God's perspective on and see what the finished work of that looks like. And we get a vision of the finished work of Jesus Christ as John encounters him there in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, the little lion that was slain before the foundation of the world that he saw there in the throne taking the seal or taking the scroll and breaking the seals of the scroll from the hand of very God himself. So it's in this passage this morning that I want to work, that we'll build an understanding of verses 9 and 10 in Ephesians there, knowing that God is consuming and wrapping everything up. The word there uh, in the Greek is, really means recapitulating. He's bringing everything together in Christ. In verses 9 and 10, you'll see that, everything in heaven and everything on earth. And that is God's plan from beginning to end. Uh, it is all being brought together in the fullness of Christ. So I hope you see that this morning, and I'm going to challenge you a little bit this morning as well. As we look at John's life, I want you to look directly at your life. I want you to look directly at your life. Let's begin. In 1774, a leader named John Adams boldly declared, Someday I see a union of 13 states, a new nation, independent from the parliament and the king of England. So he was the first to express this idea publicly. Just a few years later, against all odds, the United States was born. Just 15 years later, an Englishman named William Wilberforce stood before the British Parliament, and he lobbied for the day when the slaves would no longer be bought and sold. Decades later, the slave trade was officially abolished all across the United Kingdom. In the late 1700s, at a meeting of the Baptist leaders at that time, a newly ordained minister stood to argue for the value of overseas missions. But he was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, Young man, you sit down. You're just an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. That even such an attitude is even, an attitude that is such is inconceivable to us today, and it's largely due to the subsequent efforts of that young man, William Carey. William Carey spent 41 years in India without furlough. He missioned. His mission counted some 700 converts in a nation of millions, but he led, laid an impressive foundation of Bible translations, education, and social reform. And I'll just tell you that the same translation that William Carey did into the Hindi language of the Indian people we still deal with in our trips there today, working through some of the Greek that he had worked with. These things are not disconnected. In the 1940s, a young man named Billy Graham and a few of his college buddies gathered together and dreamed of filling stadiums all over the world presenting the gospel to millions. Beloved, these men and many others like them were so passionate about their ideas and what they represented that they boldly presented them as real possibilities that even at the time they were presented seemed like utter impossibilities to almost everyone. That is everyone but them. 
So I ask you this morning to think about this truth. What is there that is worth giving your whole life and all your passion for? What is there in this world and all the things that you could choose to do worth giving your whole life and every ounce of passion that you will have and even your life itself for? What is worth that? I'm sure each of these men received their fair share of scoffers in their time. In fact, history records such, but they each ascribed to something great, a passion, a belief that propelled them on, even in the face of these scoffers that caused them to forge ahead. Something, something was worth more than what they would need to endure to get that one something. Beloved, I'm convinced of this, that the key to living the Christian life and doing great things for God is daily overcoming fear and doubt by looking squarely at the majesty of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John was one such man. He wrote the book of Revelation that we're working from this morning. He also wrote the Gospel of John and 1, 2, 3 John, the epistles. He must have received the same type of skepticism. And we could do this with any of the disciples this morning or the soon-to-be apostles. We could look at their lives, but... John is particularly peculiar this morning because he wrote the book of Revelation and it's in his life. He lived the longest. He lived to be probably almost 100 years old, uh, scholars tell us. But if we could just look at his life this morning and pattern ours just a little bit after that, I think that we can answer this question of what is worth giving your whole life for. Let's just look at John's life momentarily and we can now hear uh, fool's errand, some would shout about John's life. What are you thinking? Leaving your father's trade of fishing, the boats, the nets, you will fail. This will never work. You're crazy, John, because this is how Jesus approached John. He said, I want you to be a fisher of men. And that meant that he had to leave his father and his father's business and everything that his father's business represented at that time. He was called to follow, and we see that in Matthew 4, 18 through 21. Jesus was walking along by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, and he calls them. He says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they immediately followed Jesus, and he walked a bit further, and he saw James and John standing there with their father, mending their nets, and he called them immediately, and they left their boat and their father and followed Jesus. I can hear it now. What were you thinking, John? What do you mean? You're leaving your father's business. He, you were set up. You had things all in line. There was a perfect uh, uh, profession for you to be a fisherman. You were going to take over your father's business, you and your brother, and you were going to be successful. It was there just waiting. And the next three minute, years of ministry must have been a blur in John's life. Jesus was healing people. He was forgiving their sins. He was uh, uh, removing demons from them. All the scoffers' voices must have turned away from John, at least at some level. I mean, he saw Jesus teaching. He saw Jesus doing all these things and, and, and Jesus healing and Jesus exercising demons and people's long, lifelong mouths. He even saw Jesus bring people back from the dead. John said, I made the right decision. The scoffers' voices were much further away. Consider John's life at this point. Three years went by very quickly. John thought he had made the best decision. He was no longer hearing the voices that told him he had made a big mistake by leaving his father's business. He was no longer hearing those things, but he sees Jesus ride into that city on that little donkey on that fateful day. 
man, he's at the top of the world. This is it. Everything that Jesus has told him and taught him is coming to pass. This Jesus is going to be king, and we're going to rule right along with him. People are laying down palm branches, shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. John must have thought this is the top, this is the pinnacle, we're just about there. All of this is going to pay off. I mean, if you think about this just a little bit, all of Christian ministry and Christian life is just like this. You have the really high highs and the really low lows. One minute that you're on top of the world having a warm, beautiful mountaintop experience, and the very next moment you're in the valley in the lowest of lows. One minute you have the faith enough to move mountains, and the next, well, it's all dried up and it's gone away, and you're weak and you're doubting. And we see John begin to experience these very doubts. Because as Jesus rode into that city, what happened that week? The would-be king was arrested. John's heart must have dropped. He not only was he arrested, but he saw the ire of the people rise, and they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And John stood and he watched as Jesus was attached to that cross, and they began to crucify him. And at the end of that fateful day, he died. John was on the very bottom. Man, can you imagine the pain, the regrets? His mind must have gone back to all those scoffers saying, you'll never make it, John. This is just not going to work. This is too good to be true. Fool's errand, chasing after the wrong thing. But it was just three days of intense agony for John, and Jesus came out of the grave. Jesus came out of the grave, and I could just imagine that John went from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs because everything that he'd been teaching is right. The courage is flowing again like never before. And then he spends 50 days with him. Sweet, sweet time it must have been for John and the other disciples to spend 50 days with Jesus. And then the ascension comes, and Jesus is taken up in their, in their very vision, taken up from them. And as he's taken up, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin preaching there in Jerusalem. About 3,000 people were added to the church that day. And I bet old John was saying, man, this is going to work out. Look, just like he said, we're going to go preach the gospel, and people are going to flock to us. They're going to love us. They're going to think that all this should be how it's supposed to be. And then Acts chapter 7 comes, and Stephen is martyred. And this must have been somewhat of a defeat in John's mind. How could this be? Uh, people are going to love us. They're going to turn to this message in droves, and the church is going to rise, and this is going to go forward. But Stephen is being brutally murdered by people who hated the message and hated the church. But we know what that hate did. It spread the church, and 70 A.D. comes, and all of the destruction of Jerusalem. And John must have thought, wow. I can't believe I signed up for this. The fledgling church was now being pushed out into the surrounding areas, and it was really tough sledding there for a while for him. I mean, look at what uh, the persecution that came, and John saw all of it. He most likely would have witnessed the death of all the other apostles. In fact, most of history says that he did, and as he would sin and in the second, early in the second century, Polycarp writes that he was uh, discipled under the feet of John. But John had hit rock bottom, the deepest of valleys. He'd lived through the merciless persecution of Nero. And now at the end of his life, he not only had lived through that persecution, but been a victim of that persecution. They tried to boil John. Fox's Book of Martyrs says they tried to kill John, um, martyr John, by bowling him on a pot of pitch, but he wouldn't be killed, so they banished him 
to the island of Patmos. John must have thought, man, I can't believe I've given my life up for this. But it was there on the island of Patmos, we see in chapter 1, verse 9, John begins to have a vision of the Son of Gaian, of Jesus. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that is in Jesus was on the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God. In other words, he'd been banished there, right? Because he had been preaching the word of God, he'd been persecuted in the testimony of Jesus. He said in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. John was back on the way up. Here's the spirit. Here comes the work. He's going to write this revelation that he's about to see. He's seeing a direct revelation of the Lord and Jesus Christ and him and his judgmental period, the time of Christ, that Christ would begin to judge his church. And John gets a vision of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, and we know what that vision is. Five of the seven churches are doing something the Lord Jesus Christ didn't, didn't like. They were corrupt. How much worse could it get, really, for John? And then just as all must have seen lost, we get to the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. And we see there, beginning in the verse 6, And before the throne there was like a sea of glass, like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes, and four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like that of the face of a man, one like an eagle. And those four living creatures were there to bring worship to God, as we see in verse 8. They, each of them had six wings full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never ceased to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. John, through his ups and downs in his ministry, through his choice of leaving his father until seeing Jesus heal and, and love so many people and all the good things that began to happen and his highs and his lows and the whole life that he had given away to this point reaches this point and he must have started to get some hope again. He said, I'm having a revelation of what's going to happen in the end. I'm seeing for sure that Christ is going to be victorious. I think he'd be like any one of us. And then we get this beautiful fifth chapter. Just as John is at the end of his life and the hope that God gives him and us, a glimpse of the glory of heaven. This vision starts, as I said, in chapter 4, and it continues in chapter 5. And he sees in the right of hand of him, it says here, one who was seated on the throne, a scroll. So let's read that in verse 5, begin, or chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 1. Let's read down through there. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written uh, within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scrolls or even look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Oh, no. John's headed right back to the same condition that he was in. He just started to get this vision of what was going on. He saw God on his throne and he saw this scroll. He knew what this scroll was. And as he knew what this scroll was, he saw that scroll and he knew that this scroll contained everything that God was doing, but no one was found worthy to open this scroll. Let's look at that just a little bit. The scroll that was written on the front and the back and sealed with seven seals. What is the scroll that John would have seen? What does the scroll that John sees represent? And what was written on that scroll? What does it all mean? Someone said it might be his honeydew list. 
I don't think that's right. Right? This type of scroll or document was in popular, popular use in John's days, but not as a honeydew list, I assure you that. It was a common way to secure a contract or a legal document. It was commonly used in marriage contracts and all types of land sales, like a title deed. They didn't have a codex at that time or a book like we know them today, so they used scrolls. They were made from parchment, papyrus, or animal skins, and on each section of this scroll, the contract would be written on it, then it would be rolled up, and then it would be sealed, and just on the back edge of the scroll, a kind of a table of contents of each one of the seven sections of the scroll. Each one of those seven sections would have been sealed separately. So John captures this glorious vision of God on the throne, and he's holding in his right hand this legal document. What is that legal document? This legal document is the title deed to all of creation with the last will and testament of God the Father written on it. And God's holding it in his hands, awaiting the one worthy to execute his last will and judgment. You remember we read that in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. This is his will for all of creation, that it be recapitulated or remade in Jesus Christ. So on this scroll, this title deed to all of creation, we will see the will of God and his judgment on the earth and upon sinful man. The opening of this scroll takes us from chapters 5 through verse chapters 19 in the book of Revelation and just before Christ returns to the earth with the saints in the white robes to rule and reign for a thousand years. So if you look at the book of Revelation as a whole and sees it, this document written to the seven churches of Asia, and these are the perennial church, even the church today falls under the judgment and the prophecy of the book of Revelation, one will readily see that this chapter sets forth all of the rest of God's judgment and work on the unrighteousness of man as it unfolds, as the scroll is open or unfurled, if you will, the mystery of his will is being opened and unfurled for the last things to usher in the final days and bring about finally a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth. If I could make it just this simple, I would say it describes how God is going to extinguish all evil and sin. That's what's on that scroll. That's why it's so important. It's that longing that John had. It is that one thing that he gave his life for. He believed in Jesus. He believed that this was the right message. He believed that Jesus was going to be king, that his kingdom was coming, and that he wanted to be a part of that. He just didn't quite understand it perfectly. But we see his vision, even at this late point in Scripture, becoming more full, and with his vision becoming more full, our, our vision too. And let me tell you, this is where the challenge comes in. Because if you're living your life not according to this vision and what's written in this scroll, you're living the wrong life. You're going to be wasting your life. So contained on this scroll is the longing of every person that hungers and thirsts for righteousness' sake. It contains what satisfies their longing. It contained on this scroll is justice and righteousness and the relief of all who long to see the way of this world come to its end, finally, and the reign of perfection of the new heavens and the earth to come. On this scroll is truth, the process to set things back to right and right every wrong, to bring in final rule and reign of God and destroy all unrighteousness and injustice once for all, forevermore. On this scroll was all that creation groans for, the light to overcome the dark, the right to rule the wrong, life to rule once and forever over death, dying and dead forevermore. On this scroll is what John traded his life for, beloved. On this scroll is what every believer is called to lay down his life for today. 
We've got to lose our life to gain it, right? That's what Jesus said. Because what we see here in this place is not what will ultimately be. Righteousness will one day reign, and we long for the day when all things are made right, new. Sin will be no more. Evil overcome with good. The highs will all be high, and there will be no lows at all ever to come. We've got a little taste of that. Whenever the Dobbs decision came back and Roe v. Wade was overturned, we see little glimpses of this vision and this victory everywhere, and it tells us it's worth it. It's worth it to give up all of our life to serve and to love Jesus Christ in this place, not to build our kingdom, but to build his kingdom. That's verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. But what comes next? John must have... Man, his heart, I can't imagine the passion that John had for life and for writing for Jesus, how it must have waxed and waned at this time. He said, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and and to break its seals? Who is worthy? And I think about, and I know many of you know Andy Peterson's song, Is He Worthy? Is anyone able? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seals and open the scroll? It was a longing moment. There was a call go out into all of the earth, right? Someone worthy needs to come open the scroll. And verse 3 tells us the end of that search was, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was found able to open the scroll. Poor John. Do you see what happens here? Look in verse 4 with me. John's right back where he was. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. We get like John, don't we? We take our eyes off the promises of God and begin to weep because we try to do it in our own power and we don't remember the promises of God. But yet, Revelation 5 tells us specifically that there was one worthy. And the scope and breadth of the search in heaven and on earth and under the earth to find one worthy to open the scroll testifies. It testifies to the massive consequence and contingency of the nature and urgency of the problem of the contents of the scroll. This is no fool's errand. To open this scroll is serious business. So the the search for the one worthy underscores the seriousness of the problem and the solutions to the problem that will be held withheld held within the scroll. I said it earlier, but the contents of the scroll contain the rest of the book of Revelation. It pertains to God's last will and testament. The scroll contains God's judgment on all the earth and the people in it, everything evil. It's not just anyone who is able to open this scroll. Not just anyone has the credentials that are required so the search goes out. It's a big search because it's a big job. It's the removal of all sin. It's the reversing of God's curse. Clear back to the garden. All of heaven and earth and under the earth is sought because this is going to take a mighty warrior. But everyone in, on, and under the earth, from sea to signing she, from heaven to hell, no one was found worthy to open that scroll. And mind you, they were looking in heaven where all those Old Testament saints, like we read about this morning, Joshua, David, right, all of the... Of the great fighters we know, Moses and all of those, the victorious ones, all were theirs. 
many scholars remind us, but yet none of them were worthy. No champion in all of history, no world power in all of history, no government, no kingdom, no nation, none were worthy. Not one who was able to break the seals and open the scroll was found. And after the siren call of that mighty angel goes out, no one was found worthy. John's heart, as I said, must have hit rock bottom because he begins to weep bitterly. So because of the scope of the problem and the breadth of the search for one who is worthy and because of the outcome of that search having failed, none was found worthy, no hero, no deliverer to deliver all of creation. Not one was found worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Not one was found worthy to deliver John. From everything he had been experiencing, not one could stop the evil, not one could stop the corruption, not one scripture tells us. John's natural reaction would be loud, bitter weeping. Here is a man that has given up his whole life, not just his professional life in fishing, but he had given up his whole life to Jesus and the church, and he must have been saying to himself, I can't believe it's going to work out this way. I, gotta, I, I, I have no other hope. None is found worthy. And the scripture says, loud, bitter weeping was heard. It's the kind of weeping that a person would commit to a lament that is common among the mourning for the dead. He was not whimpering to himself quietly in the corner here. But this says in the scripture that it was a loud lament, like as if an innocent child had died. It was a feeling of hopelessness and deep despair that John had, a lament of bitter weeping for the absolute shame of what cannot be stopped or controlled to make the outcome what it should be. It's the bitter lament over the loss of what is right. We see it every day. You know, I often say this, but sin is a shame. Sin is a shame. It's a bitter lament for what ought to be that's not going to come to pass. Oh, the injustice of it all. It's a bitter lament over what ought to be yet cannot be because no one has the power to right the wrong or stop the injustice or cause there to be some hope even that what is right might prevail. Our whole world is caught up in this. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 8, for we know that the whole world has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons or redemption of our body, as we wait for the resurrection, as we wait for the one who is worthy to come and take away all of the hurt and all of the pain, as we wait for this process to take place, the whole world, even us, we groan. We groan because we know we have a part in it. We know we groan because we see the loud, bitter weeping of the unrighteousness of sin. We groan because we have an eager anticipation for that to every wrong to be righted someday. I don't have a lot of time to explore this singular passage. But this illustrates how man understands his fallen condition in sin, that his condition has caused corruption in the whole of creation, that all of creation groans together, awaiting it being freed from the bondage of corruption and sin. More simply put, sin is the cause of evil, and because we all sin, we're all responsible for the evil that we see in this world today. That's a tough place to be, isn't it? But I've got good news this morning, not only for you, but for John, as it has it, as our story turns out, it turns out to be more of a comedy than a tragedy because one is found worthy. 
This is not the end of the story. Though the dark be night around us, or though the night be dark around us, works either way, it won't stop the light from getting through. The rest of this passage in Romans has hope. So does the rest of this passage in, Re- in Revelation have one hope, have hope for us because the one worthy is found. Read with me in verse 5. John says in verse 4, I began to weep loudly because not one was found. Verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Listen, beloved, this is where this story begins to take a real turn in John's life. Because the search that had gone out through all the earth, through all the heaven and under the earth, has found one worthy. One worthy to open the scroll, and that adjective is important. It means having or showing the qualities or abilities that merit recognition in a specified way. In other words, the search was as big as it was because the nature of the job required someone as big as Jesus was. Only Jesus could fulfill this role. He was the one worthy. And what we're going to find out is that John begins to rejoice here with all of heaven and with all of creation, begins to rejoice because the one worthy has been found. John's saying to himself, this has been worth my whole life. I have chosen correctly. I have followed Jesus my whole life, though I gave it away here on earth, has been worth it because of the, the recognition of the one worthy in heaven. Listen, I tend to relate this a little bit more specifically to people I come in contact with, the week, uh, with during the week. And this week, as I came in contact, I was out Monday evangelizing a little bit and handing out a few gospel tracts. And I also met some of my neighbors this week. And I had some conversations this week that just make me, drive me back to these points in Scripture because Jesus is the one that's worthy. And as I was speaking with a neighbor this week here, one here close to me, I was struck by what he had told me and my wife. He was telling us all about his and his wife's job and the amount of time that they lived here and how they knew Pennsville. And I love hearing all those stories about people and, and what they've done and, and, and the way that they progressed and, and more information about this town that we live in, Pennsville. But he told me something else that just kind of like broke my heart. He says, you know, we're, we're real busy, though. We both work six days a week. <clears throat> we go to church once in a while. He said, make no doubt about this. We love the Lord, but we're so busy that when we get time off, usually it's Sunday and we can't come to church. My wife and I love the Lord. Listen, beloved. You may say you love the Lord, but do you live like you love the Lord? John lived his whole life like he loved the Lord. This illustration that I'm going to give you is from not from my heart, but it is so good, and I don't often do this, but it's another pastor's illustration. It's a very famous pastor, and it's a very famous illustration, and I suspect some of you have already heard it. But it come from a message that John Piper had done so many years ago. It's called the Seashells Sermon. And it's about not wasting your life. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, Piper says. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and to die for them. The people that make a durable difference in this world are not the people that have mastered many things, but are more often people who have been mastered by a few great things. One great thing, Jesus, right? 
But I know that not everybody in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. You don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If, you, if people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends to take your boat out, have some fun, spend some time down the shore, and a few good friends and a fun retirement, a quick, easy death and no hell, he says. If you could have that, you'd be satisfied even without God. John Goodpiper goes on to say that's a tragedy in the making. Three weeks ago, he said, we got word in our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all of her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, among the poor, among the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old as well, and serving at Ruby's side, both of them in Cameroon. And they were driving along a mountainside, and the brakes give away, and over the cliff they go, and they're gone. They're killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy, he says. That is glory. He said, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now Bob and Penny live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting seashells. He said, that's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that same tragic dream. He goes on to say, and I would echo these words, I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. It's the American dream. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells, and at the last chapter before you stand before the creator of all the universe to give account for what you've done with your time here. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. John was saying, here it is, Lord, my life. <laughs> Beloved, I don't know exactly where you stand this morning. I don't know if you spend more time proportionately building your kingdom or the Lord's kingdom. But I do know that you're going to have the same vision that John had on that day. And if you stand and say, look at my shoe collection or my trophies from my golf years, or my 30-foot vote, or look at my golf swing. Man, I've really perfected that, God, as John would say. It's not going to be the right message before God. John intimately understood what the right message before God was. Here's my life. Listen to how this passage ends. And between the throne, verse 6, and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's Jesus, beloved. He's standing because he's alive. He's standing because he has conquered. He's standing because he is the one worthy to open the scroll. 
he's standing and only those who have given their life for him will stand with him. A little lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. This is the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, the perfect power of Christ, his omniscience, his omnipotence. He is the one that all of creation points to. He is all of God's plan. He is the all-consuming one that come that day of the cross 2,000 years ago was the central pivot point of all of history. It is what God is doing in this world. He is doing nothing else in this world but what he is doing and consuming and bringing back together through Jesus Christ. And when he had taken the scroll of the four living creatures, and this is the one, this is how we know he's the one, because he is the one worthy of all of our worship. Because when he had taken the scroll of the four living creatures and the 24 elders, all fell down before this little lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they began to sing a new song, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. All of heaven joined in this, all of earth would join in this song. For you were slain, and by your blood you've ransomed the people from, from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and they have made, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. John says, I looked around and I heard, the th- looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. Listen, beloved, the biggest number that they can say in the Greek language is 10,000. This is ten thousands times ten thousands. This is millions and billions of people who have given their life just as John has. It may look impossible here when you give your life for Christ. Even in our day, the more we give our life to Christ, the more we're going to be persecuted, the more we're going to be told that we're wrong. Judge Antonin Scalia said it thusly, and I'll just paraphrase him because I don't have the quote in front of me, but he said, be, be ready to be called a fool by the intellectual elite of this society because they will call you a fool for giving up your life and believing this truth. Yet all of heaven joins together to sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. And we know that not all, only all of heaven, all those who believe, but all those under heaven Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Beloved, I'm sure of this, that the way to do great things for the Lord Jesus Christ in this day and age, the way to overcome the fear and the fear of man is to look at this little lamb who was slain. John intimately knew who this little lamb was. He said in John 1.29, and this is the little lamb that takes away the sin of the world. I can tell you without a doubt, I can recommend this with everything that I am, and I would echo the words of Piper. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be the best in your class. You don't have to come from a good family. You don't have to come from the right place. You don't have to be aristocracy. All you have to do is believe in the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world and give your life to his kingdom, and you will be saved. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to a close this morning. These things are not trivial. I'm convinced that the key to living this Christian life and doing great things for you 
just like the men we read of at the beginning of this, is daily overcoming fear and doubt and living in the belief and in the vision that John had that you are the one worthy, that you were the one slain before the foundation of the world to take away the sin of man. And then, Father, only by you is salvation. Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy on us this morning. Thank you, Father, as we sing, or as Miss Melanie comes to sing, Worthy is the Lamb, as we stand here, the meditations not only of our mouth but of our heart. May they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Miss Melanie, please come.